so I've got a cold, so I stood in the car and listened and worshiped from Facebook, which you can still do, by the way, if you need to. And um, so I apologize for sounding like Barry White, but um, if you need a Motown song later, I can hook you up. Want what I've had, okay? So, and, and Luke's got it, and, uh, and we're just being careful. So, um, which is the perfect situation for our text today in Matthew 15, verses 1 through 20. I mean, it's perfect, all right? So turn, turn there, and we'll, we'll look at this, this text together. Cheer. Um, um, my uh, pop, poppy, okay, one of the kids' grandparents, gave um, our family, gave, gave Abby and Luke for Christmas a membership to a trampoline park in our an annual unlimited membership to a trampoline park. We have made the most of this membership. It's probably why I have a cold, okay? Um, Because, like, it's like the the ultimate membership, and so we we can jump, we can go in anytime we want as long as it's not been flooded with so many people that you can't get in. Um, And there are no time limits. We can stay there as long as we as we want. The kids give, we've gotten our money's worth or my grandfather's, my father's, my stepfather's money's worth. It's complicated, my family. Anyway, his money has been used very well um, at Urban Air. They exercise a lot. I mean, we get two or three hours in there uh, when we go. It's, it's really, really great. It is the ki- what I've noticed is it's the kind of environment that you would avoid during the pandemic because there's no shortage of people. Um, and if you're a germaphobe, not your vibe, Okay. <laughs> It's just not, it's not your vibe. They do a bang-up job keeping that place clean. I've been there to shut the place down a few times, and I've seen their deep clean that they do it at, every night um, because, again, I've been there. Um, and they do it. And um, that it's just not the kind of place that you, that you want to be if you're a germaphobe. One of the things that's been particularly concerning around this point um, is that I have also used the men's restroom many times um, because I can take the kids there after from four o'clock after school and I can finish and even continue to work um, because they have Wi-Fi and television. And uh, <clears throat> and one of the things that I have noticed is that very few men or children wash their hands in the men's bathroom after. I know, isn't that gross? I'm really sorry, but it's so perfect for the text. You'll see in just a moment. Um, <laughs> So, I, so I've, I have noticed that it reminded me of that Gary Larson cartoon, The Far Side, that I grew up on, basically as a Bible. And because um, my, my parents were like, here, read the, you know, and they were so funny. I, that's my, it is my sense of humor. Where he's at a, this, a gentleman walks out of a public restroom in a restaurant, and when you walk out and you don't wash your hands, an alarm goes off over the door. It says, didn't wash hands, right? They need one of those at Urban Air in Franklin over the men's men's restroom, just to shame children, um, mostly, and a few dads, if I'm being honest. Um, so, but I think the, like, that's not the kind of thing that I would have been obsessed about be, until the pandemic. Like I, mean, like, I wash my hands. Not enough for my family to, to appreciate. But I do, like, I am generally, generally a pretty curious. Like, we got really serious about about hygiene, and like, to the point where there were all these funny videos at first, like, people trying not to touch their face. You know, just, uh, I'm going to touch, uh, you don't realize how much you, you do that. Do you remember, like, greeting people yeah. with elbows or, like, this was going to be the new way, you know, like, we were all going to turn into Asian? It, but, you know, it, it got really serious. But now, 
like we've kind of forgotten about all that. Our chairs are closer together. I don't know if you've noticed. And that's in part because of the huge tank of water back there. We must not be Presbyterian. There's a tank of water back there. Um, like we've gotten really sensitive. Like even, even though we're more sensitive to it, uh, we, in the wake of it, I mean, it was really a bad thing. The pandemic was bad. We are generally more sensitive to, to personal hygiene. So much so that what I've noticed about myself, somebody who wasn't super sensitive about it, but now I'm more sensitive about it, is that those kids and those dads that are coming out of the urban air bathroom at the same time as me, and they're not stopping by the sink on the way out. I'm judging them. Based, I'm judging, like, this is what, something's wrong with a man who doesn't wash his hands after he goes to the bathroom, right? Something is wrong. I, bottom line is this, I am judging someone's internal character based on their external or lack of external cleanliness, okay? I'm, I'm judging someone's internal cleanliness based on their external cleanliness, which is, in effect, the very conversation that Jesus had with his disciples and some Pharisees in Matthew 15, 1 through 20, which is the text we're going to look at today. So um, Jesus has just walked on water with Peter, and he's rescued him, and they've gone to shore. They've pulled themselves together. They now realize, the disciples, who they're actually dealing with in a way that they've not yet understood this far in the Matthew, they, you are the son of God. And Jesus yet again, and he continues to heal them and, and bring relief to them and have compassion on them as you would hope the son of God would actually do. And while all that is taking place or just after that is taking place, there arrives a delegation of Pharisees, of these religious leaders in the Jewish culture and they're from Jerusalem which means they're an official delegation of sorts and they're they've come to Jesus and they've come to his disciples and they have an official complaint um, in verses one through two look at that with me Jesus was approached by Pharisees and scribes I forgot to mention them from Jerusalem who asked this question who do you, why excuse me do your disciples break the tradition of the elders they don't wash their hands when they eat. So, so the Pharisees sound a whole lot like my mom. <laughs> you know, like, for the Lord, for the Like, I would come home from school, and um, do y'all remember the Schwann's frozen food truck? Okay, we had, that's frozen pizza, or wrap up a hot dog and a bun and a paper towel and stick it in the microwave for a minute and a half, and that was my snack. You know, as a teenage boy, that's, that's what I would get before I would eat dinner and then before I would eat second dinner. I was like a hobbit. Like, I would just, you know, always these extra meal cycles in the, in the things. And, but she would be like, how could you go through school all day and then come in here and touch everything in my kitchen and not wash my hands? Like, that feels very pharisaical um, based on the text here, but... but but look, notice a little more closely at verse 2. Why do your disciples not, why are they so dirty? They say, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? The, the Pharisees' issue here is not hygiene, but ceremony. The, the, the problem that the Pharisees have with the practice of the disciples is not that they might get a cold or eat something, put something in their body that's unhealthy for them and cause them to sound like I sound right now, Okay. The, the, their problem is that it's that they, the Pharisees, had created these traditions and these ceremonies by which they banked their religious life on, actually their whole life on, 
And the disciples weren't doing that. And it made the Pharisees and scribes look, well, you, you, when your whole life is banked on something that somebody else doesn't find important, you can understand, like, that's hard enough as it is, especially if you're insecure. But this wasn't just about insecurity. This was about religion. This was about being right with God. And so from the Pharisees, you had to do these things to be right with God, and the disciples of Jesus aren't doing them. So this is an opportunity for them to poke holes in who Jesus is and what he's about. So Jesus' response was not nice. It was not nice. Look at verses 3 through 6. He answered them, Why do you break God's commandment because of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever speaks evil of father or mother must be put. Why do you break God's commandment? Because of your tradition. In verse 4, let me give you an example. Here's a commandment in verse 4. But you say, and this is a tradition, whoever tells his father or mother, quote, whatever benefit you might have received from me is a gift committed to the temple. Well, he goes on. He does not have to honor his father. So in this way, you have nullified the word of God because of your tradition. Now, at first, when I first read this, it sounded like my brother and I arguing in the backseat of my car growing up. So, so we're in the back of the DeVille, you know, and driving, and I'm, you know, 10, and I've got my Sony Walkman, you know, with the thing, speakers over, and, you know, and my, Michael, my brother, is six or seven, and, and he can hear me singing, you know, I want to dance with somebody, you know, because I've got Whitney Houston going through the thing, and I can just hear Michael going like, Mom, will you please tell Rob to quit singing his music out loud, you know, with his headphones are a speaker, not a microphone, and then I would rub it in his face that I was old enough to have a Walkman, and I, like, that feels a little bit, right, when I first read it, I thought, man, Jesus is being kind of weird with, with the Pharisees, but that's, but he's, he's not, he's, they're, they're Jewish, not Southern. You know, they're, they've, they've got a different vibe going, and we need to put on our, our lens, you know, our cultural lens, to read this the right way. Jesus is not, he's not doing that. He's doing, he's doing two things. He's confronting the Pharisees with regard to the practice they're following, and then he's condemning them for the false understanding that they have about religion in general. Okay, so let me, let me show you that. And this is where it gets to get really personal here in a minute, so hang on. Look at verse 3. Why do you break God's commandment because of your tradition? So, so Jesus sets the tradition that he's going to talk about over and against the law. See, so those things are not the same. Okay? The Pharisees accuse Jesus and his disciples of breaking a tradition. So Jesus uses that accusation as an opportunity to reveal to the Pharisees how they, as Pharisees, may very well be keeping the tradition, but they're breaking actual divine law in the process. And he gives a very specific example. That's verses 4 through 6. Okay, You said, God said, honor your father and mother, and whoever speaks evil of your father and mother must be put to death. That is the fifth commandment from Exodus 20. That's also a direct verse from Exodus 21, 17. Those are divine commands that teach and imply that the children, the adult children, 
take care of their parents when their parents are older and are in a time of need. It is a part of honoring your father and your mother that when they have a need, you care for them as, your, as their children. Okay. But the Pharisees had devised this way in their traditions, keeping the traditions that they devised, but by keeping that tradition, they would break the law of keeping the divine command to care for and honor for your parents. Okay. So the, the, what they did is this. Forgive me for being just a little bit technical, but it actually explains what Jesus is saying. So hold, hold on, okay? The Pharisees divide this way, devise this way to avoid this obligation entirely. So if, if a parent who was in need approached their child to help them with this need, all the child had, the parent, the adult child, all the adult child had to do was say, well, the money that I would use to help you, I've already committed it to the church. They have to do it. Give that money to the church. They just had to say that they were giving that money to the temple in support of the church. Okay? All that person had to do was just promise it to the temple. They didn't actually have to do it. And they got out of having to actually help their parents. Okay? Which is a really horrible thing to do to your parents. And a really, like, using God... Like, think about how, I'll let you do that, okay? But what's worse is that the Pharisees saw a true law of God and that when confronted with it, they knew, they knew they couldn't keep it. None of us have honored our parents perfectly. They knew they couldn't keep it. And rather, we take you back to Matthew 5. This is why we go through a whole book, okay? Even though we may never get out, right, Kevin? Um, they knew they couldn't keep it. And rather than look at the law, I just need God to do it for me, which is a poverty of spirit, and therefore gain the kingdom of heaven. Instead, what they do is they said, you know what, I can't do it, but I can do this. And they exchanged the divine law of God for a human law that actually gets them nowhere with God but it makes them feel really good about themselves. And therefore, you now have what we call self-righteousness. Okay? They exchanged the law of God that they couldn't keep for a law that they could. And that gets you nowhere with God. But it gets you everywhere with yourself and with people who love to admire people like you. Okay? So Jesus, has, he's, he's not nice about this. Talk about me guys not, not washing their hands, not keeping the tradition. Let's talk about how you keep tradition as a means of actually breaking the divine law. Let's talk about that. Okay? And if that's not enough, Jesus takes it all the way to the house. Slam dunk. He quotes Isaiah 29, 13. Look at verse 7. Hypocrites. Isaiah prophesied correctly about you when he said, <clears throat> and I quote, this people honors me with their lips, and underline this word, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines human commands. You are putting on the guise 
of love for God and worship. When you elevate tradition, ceremony, procedure, human commands, and actually use them to contradict and break divine commands, and yet have everybody think very far from God. Do you remember the movie The Sandlot? Quintessential American tale, childhood, coming of age movie. There are two baseball teams are feuding in the field, the, the Sandlot group that we all love and adore, and then the, the, the snotty boys from across town who come riding in on their bikes, and they're having an argument. They're insulting each other back and forth and back and forth, and finally there's the ultimate insult. You play ball like a girl, right? And then the game on. Noon, tomorrow, our field, and they lose, of course. It was wonderful, right? This, this, is, this is what's happened in this moment with Jesus and the, and the Pharisees. Jesus is not insulting them, although I'm sure they feel it. He, he's just, Isaiah prophesied about you correctly when he said, you worship me with your lips, you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. Your heart is far from me. A love of tradition more than a love for God always leads to false religion, not God. Always. Okay. And that point was so important that Jesus said, hey, everybody, come here. You got to hear this. And he gathers those who are around watching, and he summons, he summons them, verse 10, summons the crowd. He takes a private, <laughs> I love this. You got the Pharisees that come to Jesus in, in, in public because they're, they're trying, to, trying to poke holes in his ministry, trying to make him look like he's not who he says he is. And, and Jesus turns it around on them and then very publicly summons everybody around who admires and loves the Pharisees and says, okay, come here. Listen and understand. Verse 11. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of a mouth. This defiles a person. <clears throat> what does this mean? Sorry. So here, an illustration. Jonathan had worked very hard. My oldest son, my second oldest son, second born son, who's a senior in high school, worked very, very hard in his college applications like a very beautiful son and one of his one of his dreams was to be uh, at the Air Force Academy that was his number one choice the United States Air Force Academy the list of things that Jonathan did to accomplish this uh, to, to, to position himself for a for admission was truly remarkable it was like applying to seven or eight colleges at once um, and the the um, there the two major major things that are required just to be finally considered by the admissions group over at, at USAFA um, is your um, a nomination from your congressman or one of your senators, um, and and then now Jonathan did not get a nomination from a congressman or a senator, so he will not be attending the, the United States Air Force Academy. But Jonathan did pass his Dodmerb. Okay, we had you know physical and all these files that we had. I mean, it was very intense because you know. But then this week, Jonathan got an email from uh, the 
Dodmerb people that said, Jonathan, we, we've, we've changed your Dodmerb from, from pass to remedial. How would you like to get a review, a medical review, that said you are remedial, right? It's a little bit of a weird word, okay? But basically, Jonathan is 6'8", you know, 150. And the minimum requirement of weight for somebody that's 6'8 in the Air Force is 175, okay? So they're, so they're right, like, which is not asking a lot. <laughs> I mean, I'm like, I feel like it's okay to ask somebody to be 6'8 and 175 because we could all, Jonathan would be first to tell you, he could use 25 pounds. Like, he'd be, he'd be great if it was not all in one place, right? It would be fine. But <clears throat> so now, but, but, but because they moved into remedial, they said, now, we'll, we'll bring you back, but you need to go to the doctor, and the doctor needs to tell us that you don't have a thyroid problem, that you don't have diabetes, and that you don't have a menstrual problem. I feel like if Jonathan had a menstrual problem, we'd have more issues with the Dodmer, you know, going on. Pretty much just cutting and pasting, you know, cutting, you know, copying and pasting from, from some file somewhere. So as far as the Dodmer is concerned, Jono is now defiled, right? As far as esophagus, he is defiled until he can do something on the outside that changes his inside. Okay. That was the religious consensus of Jesus' day. That was the pharisaical position. That your level of defilement before God went up or down based on how well you met the standards set by Pharisees. Okay. And Jesus says, wrong. Our hearts are the things that defile us. No amount of ceremony or tradition or character building or private education or manners training or disciplinary actions are going to fix somebody's heart. It's not going to happen. Okay? And Jesus summons the crowd to tell him, this is so important. Get in here. I need you to know something. Your behavior is not your problem. Your behavior is a symptom of the problem. Your craziness is not the problem. Your craziness is a symptom of the problem. The issue is your heart. And the defilement that you see on the outside has come from the inside. What you're doing isn't making you defiled. So the Pharisees, um, so the disciples, <laughs> they, that happens. The disciples pull Jesus aside and they say, look at verse 12. Now, you know you just really upset the Pharisees. <laughs> verse 12. The disciples came up and told him, you do, do you know that the Pharisees took offense when they heard what you said? Nothing offends a self-righteous person more than pointing out their hypocrisy. Self-righteousness resents truth that exposes the heart and our needs. But self-righteousness loves truth that can be used and manipulated to make oneself look great, which makes it hard to identify them at first. Look at verse 13, though. Jesus replied to the disciples' concern with a metaphor or a parable of sorts. Okay, look at verse 13, 14. 
Jesus says, so the disciples say, you know, you, you really hurt their feelings. They took offense at what you said. Jesus says, okay. Every plant that my heavenly father didn't plant will be uprooted. Leave them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind guide the blind, both will fall into a pit. So there are two, two images here that Jesus puts on the Pharisees, okay? First, he calls them plants that the Father did not plant, okay? So Holly, I've told you all in various illustrations what an amazing job Holly's done with our kind of awkward-shaped yard over the last three years. Its backyard is beautiful. There are so many varieties of plants from, from all kinds of places in our yard. A couple of years ago, we had uh, white, this year, we had white pumpkins come up in our yard, white pumpkins, and then, and, and then we had these watermelons grow like this size, but when you cut them open, they looked and tasted like cucumbers. She said, no, they're volunteer plants. They're, they're called volunteers. We didn't plant them, right? They were plants that we didn't plant, but this whole time they looked like they fit into this amazing smorgasbord that we've got going on back there, and, and you know, but we didn't put them there. They were involuntary plants. They volunteered themselves, probably through birds dropping their stuff that they, they do. Okay, And that's what Jesus is saying about the Pharisees. About the Pharisees, y'all. About the most admirable, religious, devout people that you could ever, ever want your kids to be like. Jesus says they are Plants that the Father didn't plant. On the surface, they look like plants that were intentionally planted in the garden, but they're volunteer plants. They claim to represent the Lord, and they superficially associate, associate themselves with Him, but in reality, they stand against Him. Guys, several years ago, four or five years ago, after a, 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 a transatlantic cruise from Fort Lauderdale, over into Europe, we, we mist- made the horrible decision of spending a few days in Paris before coming home. I really have no love for Paris. Um, it was just, I took a three-year-old and a five-year-old, so I guess I deserve it. But um, it, was, it was not awesome. I basically ended up carrying Luke or Abby all over Paris. You probably wouldn't notice how buff I got in, that, in those four days, right? But, I mean, it was awesome. And that included the bulk of a two-hour tour through the Louvre. A private tour. Like I hired a lady who was good with kids to take us through the Louvre so we wouldn't get so overwhelmed because you literally could live in there and nobody would ever find you. Um, so I actually found the photo and the video last night. Like this really, did, this really did happen. I have this great photo of Luke and video over my shoulder not looking at the Mona Lisa because <laughs> he's sound asleep. I mean, he's, he is out, right? So I've, I've been to the Louvre actually twice, and I, and I am by no means qualified to guide anybody through the Louvre. It's almost as bad as the Vatican. Like, you, everything looks the same. Like, there's another piece of really expensive art that has no meaning to my life. Like, I mean, I just go on and on and on, you know. Like, um, if I were to take you through the Louvre, I've been there. Come on, guys, let's go. We'd both be dumb and lost, okay? And that's what Jesus is saying about the Pharisees. Oh, it's so deadly. They look so holy, right? They look so important. They look like the kind of person you want to lead you 
to the throne, but the only place they're leading you is to themselves. They are blind guides, and you're both going to fall in the pit if you follow a Pharisee. And I, sometimes I think maybe Jesus is being metaphorical here, like they're both going to stumble. And some, some theologians are like, no, he means hell. Either way, it's not where you want to be. Okay. So what? Well, that's what Peter asked in verse 16. So what? And Jesus told him in verse 17. He repeats, he doubles down on what he pulled the crowd in to tell them in verse 11. He says, Peter, don't you realize that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But what comes out of the mouth comes from the heart, and this defiles a person. It's from the heart that come evil thoughts and murder and adultery and sexual immorality and thieves and false testimonies and slander. These are the things that defile a person, but eating with an unwashed hand, that does not defile a person. might be gross. doesn't change your standing before God. doesn't defile you. So what is Jesus saying here? By the way, Mark, in chapter 7 of Mark, takes from this passage, he says, and with this statement, Jesus did away with the food issues in Judaism, the diet, restrictions, kosher, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we later see this unfold in Acts with Peter and through the church. So you could take away that. But that's not really the issue that Jesus is driving home with. What he's driving home is that we have two problems. One, we need forgiveness for our sin because our hearts are defiled before God. And we need a new heart that will enable us to stop sinning and love God and enjoy God. That's, that's what we need. So where can forgiveness be found? Where can a new heart be acquired? And if we keep reading Matthew, Lord willing, what we'll see is that Jesus gives us both of those things. He died on the cross so we can have forgiveness. He bore the punishment for our sin in his place. And he rose again and he sent the Holy Spirit to give us a new heart. He's the source of our new life. God alone is the only one capable of giving us a new heart and giving us the forgiveness that we need. That's what Jesus is saying. We need a heart. We need a brand new heart. And because we need a brand new heart, we need to teach and lead each other toward the need for a new heart. The temptation is to teach and lead according to a law that we can actually accomplish and make ourselves feel good about ourselves and get some admiration for people who think the same way. That's not the gospel. That will land us in hell. We'll feel really good about it till we get there. Okay? We need to teach and lead each other for a new heart. So we have to do what human beings are responsible and capable of doing to shepherd one another to the place where we need a new heart. I woke up thinking about this this morning, and Paul Ted Tripp's book, Shepherding a Child's Heart, came to mind. I found this quote. Ted Tripp says, I've spoken to many parents who feared that they were producing little hypocrites who were proud and self-righteous. Hypocrisy and self-righteousness are the result of giving children a keepable law. This will destroy, I'm going to destroy your parenting right now, by the way. I'm just warning you, okay? That's why I chose, I needed, I, I said, Holly, I got all the parenting books out <laughs> this morning. Like, we found five of them. I'm like, okay, I got to read these again. 
Hypocrisy and self-righteousness are the result of giving children a keepable law and telling them to be good. And to the extent they are successful, they will become like Pharisees. The genius of Phariseeism is that it reduced the law to a keepable standard of externals that any self-disciplined person could do. And in their pride and in their self-righteousness, the Pharisees rejected Jesus. They didn't need him because they were good enough, thank you very much. Okay. What's the first thing we need in order to be a Christian? Page Benton Brown. Nothing. And most people don't have it. What's the first thing we need? We need a new heart, right? The sacrifice God asks us to bring him, Matthew 5, 3, 4, and 5, a broken and contrite heart. What does Paul say true circumcision is? He calls it circumcision of the heart, okay? Genuine obedience is from the heart. It's intrinsic motivation, okay? Saving faith is belief from the heart. We talked about that, yes, last week. Where does Jesus dwell? By the Holy Spirit. He dwells in our hearts. We have a heart problem. He gives us a new heart. I invite you to receive and hold on to a new heart. Let's pray together. Lord, I'm I'm thinking about a, a song that I heard many years ago that uh, the line of which I used um, in this sermon. I'm just thinking about the song, A New Law, that asked the question, what's the use of claiming a law? What's, what's the use of exchanging a law that you can never keep for one that you can that doesn't get you anything? And the answer to that question is it makes us feel good about ourselves. The best that this world, Lord, the best this, this world can offer is, you know, a decent character. And, and sadly, I think that many of us would be really happy in this world if we could just be good enough. Like, just, just you know, not kill each other. Like, that's the standard, you know. We just be nice. But that's exchanging a law that we can't keep for one that we can if we're self-disciplined enough. And that does not make us right with you. We, what, the problem is our heart. We need a new heart. And so we ask, Lord, that you would break our hearts and give us new ones. And that um, we would accept this new heart from you and help us to teach and love and, and mold one another and shepherd one another in, in the gospel that requires a new heart. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.